0: Hello again, and welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration, refugee, and population issues brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I am Rachel Reyes, CMS's Director of Communications. This podcast is the first of a two part series we've entitled Shaping a Nation The Past and Present Struggles over Immigration. In a heated presidential election year, many may be wondering how the anti-immigrant sentiments and rhetoric of today compare with past times in U.S. history. To discuss this issue, I sat down with Charles Wheeler, director of the Catholic Legal Immigration Network's training and legal support section and author of the chapter, The Evolution of the United States Immigration Laws, which is in the 2014 book, International Migration, U.S. Immigration Law, and Civil Society, from the Pre Colonial Era to the 113th Congress, published by CMS and the Scalabrini International Migration Network. Charles Wheeler is the Director of Training and Legal Support at Clinic, where he manages support and advocacy on immigration law and related issues affecting immigrants. Prior to joining Clinic, Charles directed the National Immigration Law Center for more than 10 years and practiced and taught immigration law for two decades. He has served on the boards of the National Immigration Forum, American Immigration Lawyers Association, National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, and other leading organizations. Welcome, Charles. Can you start by describing the chapter you wrote on the history of U.S. immigration laws?
1: Sure. Well, the chapter really was a history of immigration law in the United States. So it starts not really with the first federal law. It really starts with the colonies, and their efforts to restrict immigration. They, in fact, were the ones that posed the first laws that excluded certain people, for example, people who were possibly indigent or were suffering from certain medical problems, or criminals. Um, So our immigration laws really predate the federal government getting involved and really go back to colonies trying to protect who came in, Uh, based on all sorts of grounds of what we now call inadmissibility.
0: And can you tell us about the first federal law on immigration?
1: Uh, The first federal law really was the Alien Sedition Act, uh, which was something that we don't really like to talk about much. Uh, It was never really... Implemented, so to speak, and it expired a couple of years later, um, but that was really sort of set the tone in terms of uh, the federal government getting involved in immigration law.
0: Recent events have led to a political climate that seems increasingly hostile to immigration, um, including the attacks in San Bernardino and Paris, the refugee crisis in Europe, and the surge starting in 2012 of Central American migrants to the United States. Some of these strong anti-immigrant sentiments are coming straight from presidential candidates. Can you speak on anti-immigrant sentiments throughout the history of the United States compared to today? Sure. Well,
1: anti-immigrant sentiments are as old, really, as the country, if not even older. Uh, They go back to the forming of the colonies, really. If you look at the first pilgrim sites and you look at the first uh, places in New England, Uh, They were all about religious persecution, people fleeing persecution, but then once they got here, sort of pulling up the gangplank and uh, restricting people of other religions from settling in their area. Uh, So you had laws against uh, anti-Quakers, you had them against uh, Catholics, you had them against uh, Protestants. It really depended upon which area of the country you happened to be settling in. Um, So our country is based both uh, on principles of expansion and acceptance, but also in periods of time of um, harsh restrictions. And this really has its core in not only economic, but also based on pure racist and anti-religious uh, beliefs. But the notion of protecting our country against terrorists or people coming here to hurt us also goes back almost as long uh, because you had laws preventing people who had basic criminal histories, and you had people who were here organizing for union rights uh, who were also claimed or, or branded as uh, aliens and seditions. Uh, so those people were in fact found to be deportable during periods of time during uh, uh, employment unrest. Um then you look through the ages in the 1800s, of course, we passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was based purely on racial prejudice that was started here in the Bay Area, uh, in California, particularly in San Francisco, but was used as a political wedge, really, um, and spread across the country by raising myths and stereotypes and hatred, really, against a whole nation. Uh, And those Chinese exclusion laws really incorporated a lot of other Asians uh, throughout the next 10-year period to where for about a 50 to 60-year period, virtually no one from the Asiatic continent was allowed into the United States and was not allowed to naturalize either. So our immigration really favored people from Northern Europe and Western Europe uh, to the exclusion of people from mexico, canada, i mean uh, africa and asia uh, and really uh, the i guess the face of america even up to the early almost mid 1900s was of a very sort of white protestant uh, northern european face and that changed in 1955 with laws that did away with the racial prejudice Uh, And as we have now, we have a much more of a opening up, really the 1965 Act that uh, reduced those barriers, created the America that we really have today. But you still have periods of time throughout history, throughout the 250-year period, when spikes in terrorist actions abroad or uh, feelings of insecurity based on communist threats or whatever will cause immigration laws to change so that people 's political um, background or sentiments uh, can definitely be a tool to keep them out of the United States. I remember, for example, in nineteen uh, in two thousand one right before the terrorist actions of november of September eleventh when we were poised to pass I guess you'd call it the antidote to the 96 law. This was a law that would have opened up immigration and provided relief for people who were otherwise uh, prevented from coming. And Bush, President Bush at that time, uh, was a real proponent for opening up immigration laws. But suddenly 9-11 happened, and the walls came down, and the whole sentiment was all about making sure people did not come in who had any kind of uh, danger or terrorist uh, implications. So Our laws have tightened up significantly since that time.
0: So going back to the Immigration Naturalization Acts of 1952 and 1965, how and why did they further open the United States to immigration?
1: Well, before that time, um, you were still dealing with the aftermath of the Chinese exclusion law, but you were also dealing with a percentage basis in terms of the number of people who could come into the United States after that. So um, the racial barrier was limited in such a way that uh, Chinese and other Asians and Africans uh, had to be based on the percentage of people living here in the United States at that time. So once those curbs or ceilings were erased, then you started getting more uh, increase. And it was kind of a level playing field. You had a certain number of people who could come in each year from certain uh, regions of the world, but it wasn't limited by the a percentage basis of who had been here before that. Um, so what that did was encourage people from um, Central and South America, as well as Asia and uh, Africa, uh, to enter in larger numbers. Uh, followed by refugees coming from uh, Southeast Asia uh, and coming from and people coming starting the fifties on the Bracero program. Uh, that encouraged people to come in for a short time period uh, to work in agriculture and and, uh, primarily from Mexico. So you had a real change in the landscape of the face of America in terms of the numbers of people, where they were settling, what countries they were coming from, and who they were encouraged to uh, bring in as other family members.
0: And so why is it that nowadays you have these long backlogs for petitioned family members from, say, the Philippines or from Mexico?
1: Well, it's all based on supply and anticipated uh, supply. Well, it's based on supply and anticipated demand. So right now, the uh, Department of State controls through legislation that was passed by Congress the number of people who can come in from any particular nationality. So, for example, we have about a quarter of a million people who can come into the United States based on family petitions, Uh, You have a much smaller based on employment skills, but there is per country limitations on who can come in, not only in terms of percentage basis, but also in terms of sheer numbers. That's why for Mexico and India, uh, the Philippines and China, you have, in fact, four different uh, columns, I guess you could say, when you look at the visa bulletin and dates that they can look at to determine when they can take the next step and immigrate. Uh, With the Philippines and Mexico, for example, with Mexico, you have approximately 750,000 people waiting to immigrate as the brothers and sisters of U.S. citizens. These are people whose petition has already been approved. They're just simply waiting for uh, a number to be uh, available for them. And you have a limit of about, I think, about uh, 6,000 per year. So if you do the numbers, Uh, you'll figure out that it's going to take about 160 years for those uh, backlog to be erased, which is, of course, ridiculous. Um, But without any kind of change or comprehensive uh, reform, uh, those uh, backlogs are still going to be there for quite a while.
0: Returning back to the nativist and anti-immigrant rhetoric through the years in the United States, can you describe the type of rhetoric and the groups involved in generating it?
1: Well, Of course, we know about the Know Nothing Party, which made itself famous for trying to exclude certain types of people, and particularly anti-immigrants, but you also have people throughout time, even before that, the origin of the Chinese exclusion laws, Um, and you can look back even further to find uh, anti-Catholic, anti-German, all sorts of uh, groups that formed not only for local, regional reasons, but also on a, a national basis to try to um, gain traction over what I think is sort of basic human nature, which is, if you go back far enough, we came from tribes and we have this tribal mentality, uh, and we try to protect people who think like we do, look like we do, act like we do, and that's our tribal nature. Uh, but as we become more of a polyglot uh, Uh, I guess you'd call melting pot kind of society, then those, I guess, instinctual barriers and prejudices start uh, disappearing, hopefully at least. So the urban centers tend to be places where people don't pay as close attention to other nationalities, uh, and it tends to be the South, it tends to be the rural areas, tends to be perhaps places in the Midwest that still hold on to, I guess you could say, a lot of their um, fears and, and uh, intimidations by uh, foreigners.
0: I remember reading in the book that there was a time when the idea of eugenics was used to lobby against opening the immigration system. How did this play a part?
1: Um, well, there were theories by people who were looking at uh, brain skulls and trying to measure intelligence based on physical attributes. Um, there's a whole science frenetics based on the size of your cranial skull, which would then somehow determine how smart you were, and with the notion that if you only uh, if you limited immigration or somehow, reproduction to people who are fit a certain category, uh, then you could control the mentality and intelligence of your country, right? Uh, And this was gaining traction. It wasn't thought of as any kind of uh, uh, stigma to be associated with this group until the Nazis, I think, really sort of broadcast that they were doing this on a broad broad, uh, basis. Um, And that's how it really lost uh, popular support. And based on that, if you started talking about eugenics, then you're immediately branded as uh, anti-immigrant, um, but also uh, really sort of seen as someone who is backward-thinking and and uh, almost uh, uh, belief in genocide, really.
0: Bringing it forward to today and considering the remarks of those such as Donald Trump stereotyping Mexicans and calling for a ban on Muslims entering the United States... Do you see history repeating itself? Do we have anything to worry about?
1: Well, it is worrisome, uh, those kinds of remarks. And it is troubling in the sense that we look back on our history of immigration laws and we see that that kind of sentiment can lead to actual laws that are embarrassing. You have the not only the Chinese Exclusion Act, but also the Japanese internment. Uh, you can look at actions that we took during wartime, where people were secluded and prejudiced against, and uh, and it is, I guess, uh, the notion that we as a country are opening our doors to the oppressed and the all the stereotypes on the Statue of Liberty really uh, is dwarfs by the fact that we are humans that have our own native fears and um, suspicions of foreign-looking people. And I think that Trump and others are tapping into this fear and to some extent even inflaming it and making it worse by these kinds of comments. Uh, I guess I take comfort in the fact that the arguments on the other side, which is the fact that it's the immigrants in this country now uh, that have emboldened us and strengthened our hand. And the fact that we are allowing refugees to enter and live amongst us that takes away some of the arguments that ISIS says, which claims that we're at war with them. Um, So to look to the future, I would say that those arguments are troublesome, but they are not going to win in the national debate, I don't believe, given the fact that uh, the people who tend to believe uh, Donald Trump and others are are not the majority and are not the way that the U.S. is going forward, in my opinion. There are too many people here now who Uh, are open to immigration and who are in fact immigrants and minorities and who don't share that kind of fear and are not going to get swept into that kind of uh, propaganda.
0: I've heard and read that Asian American and Latino voters will have a strong impact on this year's election as well as elections moving forward. What do you envision their impact will be What is the Catholic Legal Immigration Network doing, for instance, in assisting migrants to naturalize and getting them involved in the political process? Sure.
1: Uh, Well, when you look into the future, you see the impact of immigrants post-Asian and Latin American uh, immigration, and you see the percentage that they're going to make up of the populace, which, of course, is, uh, I guess, troubling to those who want to hold on to the image of America back in the 1950s of this northern European Protestant, uh, uh, perhaps Catholic uh, country. Um, but those people are diminishing. I mean, the white male uh, voter is becoming a minority, uh, has already become a minority, and in, by 2050, I think, is going to be reduced to you know about 30% of the electorate. So uh, time, I guess, is on the side of of those who are looking for more progressive ways. Uh, You had the last election where Romney got only 24% of the Hispanic vote and like about 10% of the Asian vote. Um, So those are huge numbers that the Republican Party is grappling with and trying to change its focus and its uh, image unsuccessfully, I might point out, Uh, to where... It's important that we maintain the ability of people to vote in the United States who minorities and people of of color and people of of low income who are now being um, dissuaded from voting from various ways. Uh, Clinic is encouraging and has been really since its inception, naturalization of those who are eligible, about 5 million Permanent resident aliens from Mexico, for example, have all the has spent enough time here in the United States to naturalize. Uh, I think another three million people from other countries are also eligible to naturalize. That's eight million people. That's quite a significant number of people who would otherwise uh, not be voting. We saw the effects in California of Proposition One Eighty Seven in ninety six, I believe, or ninety five, uh, where that was a statewide proposition that passed but was not allowed to go into effect that would have barred undocumented people from going to school, getting a primary education as well as access to certain health care and other benefits. And that spurred over a million Mexicans who were otherwise eligible to naturalize to actually naturalize and change the voting uh, in, the, in California to where the Republicans are now a minority party and if not held... Uh, important uh, positions, really, for the last 15, 20 years.
0: Looking at the past and into the future, can you further discuss the impact that restrictionist policies have had versus more liberal policies?
1: Well, the laws tend to come in waves, and they tend to uh, be a reaction to something that happened in the past. So there's this gap between laws and events that spurred the necessary taking of action. And we tend to look at that uh, cycle, and we tend to see that these laws that are restrictionist also are ameliorated after a few years when Congress takes another look at it and realizes that it may have gone too far. Uh, So if you look at all of those laws, eventually they either get watered down or replaced by something more liberal, and then in fact uh, get replaced by something more restrictive. So uh, you have to look at this in the long term. You have to look at the laws as having their basis or motivation um, years before, in fact, they're enacted. Um, Even the 96 law took about eight years to develop and form. The great amnesty law of uh, 1986, in fact, um, took about 10 years or 12 years to come to fruition. Uh, So it's a waiting game. You have to be very patient when you're trying to pass immigration laws, and you have to really sort of wait for the right time and and the right uh, makeup of Congress, which right now uh, has a handful of important uh, Republicans coming mostly from southern states that have blocked any kind of progressive change in immigration law for the last uh, about 10 years.
0: Great, Charles. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of CMS On Air. And for the listeners out there, if you'd like to learn more about the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, you can visit www.cliniclegal.org. To learn more about the history of U.S. immigration law and policy, check out Charles' contribution in the book, International Migration, U.S. Immigration Law and Civil Society. Available for purchase by contacting us by email at cms at cmsny.org. In the next episode of our two-part series, Shaping a Nation, the Past and Present Struggles Over Immigration, I interview Sara Campos, an immigrant rights lawyer in Northern California, who will discuss the impact of civil society on both U.S. immigrant communities and the broader debate surrounding U.S. immigration. And stay up to date on the Center for Migration Studies of New York, including research projects, publications, events, and video, by visiting us at cmsny.org.